Good morning. Welcome to this RCP podcast, which is about medical legal issues in healthcare. My name's Alistair Thompson. I'm a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians, but I'm a consultant pediatrician in Cheshire. I'm also an associate postgraduate dean for Health Education England Northwest, and I've got a long-standing role and interest in medical education. In addition to that, I do some expert medical legal work in general pediatric litigation and claims. And I'm talking today to Jenny Teplow. Jenny, would you like to speak about yourself? Yes, thanks, Alistair. Um, so, as Alistair said, I'm Jenny Tetlow, and I'm a solicitor at a firm called Higgs LLP, which is in Bridie Hill, and I represent claimants in clinical negligence claims. And, um, yeah, I'm really happy to be here speaking with you today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'd just be interested to, to hear from you, because obviously as a claimant lawyer, I, I don't have much insight into what actually happens internally when a patient brings a claim. Um, are you able to tell me a bit a bit about that process and, and how it works? Yes, a, a little. A claim would usually be sent to the trust. And I work in the National Health Service exclusively. I don't do any private work. But uh, the claim comes into the trust, either addressed to the consultant or to the legal department. But the legal department needs to see any letter of claim very early on. Before a letter of claim arrives, there may have been investigations already. For example, any baby who has an episode of perinatal hypoxia now has an automatic investigation. There's a, a process that goes on immediately after the baby's birth for the uh, what has happened to be looked at by experts. So there may already be material relating to the subject of a claim available to the trust and that can be married up with the claim in the legal department. The letter of claim will then be discussed with the consultant. Uh, There will be an investigation as to how uh, the letter of claim bears on the case. And if it's acknowledged that there's been poor care, then the legal team may advise that the claim needs to be settled quickly. But usually, especially if the claim is of any significant value, the trust is going to take legal advice and uh, notify to NHS a resolution and there'll be a bigger investigation. Yeah. I mean, I think it's obviously something that, that junior doctors in particular, well, I suppose all doctors worry about, as you acknowledged at the start of our chat. But as a clinician who has experience in obviously doing clinical work and also practicing in medico-legal work, have you got any advice for doctors who do find themselves involved in a complaint? Well, I think that the first thing is to take a, a deep breath, count to ten, and, and not feel that the sky is falling in. When people receive these letters of claim, the immediate response is to feel that they themselves are responsible personally and not view things. I think people can be very, very upset by the suggestion that things have not gone well, both for themselves and primarily for the patients. I I think feel that uh, poor outcomes for patients are not what we're in medicine for. We're all trying to do our best. To be accused of doing something wrong can be upsetting, and I know that people who receive claims respond in that way quite readily. Mm. But um, the next thing to do is to have a discussion with the legal department and look at the medical records. Uh, medical records are going to be absolutely 
essential as the foundation of finding out what has actually happened. Um, many complaints come in some time after the event, but litigation may arise years after the incident, and the personnel involved, uh, if they're still in the NHS, may have forgotten the details of the case and have to rely on their record. They may not recall um, any aspect of the case at all, so their records and the records of the other people who've been involved will be absolutely crucial. Now, we, we spend a lot of time telling doctors to keep good records, but there are some implications of that. Um, do doctors write their own records, or do they get the records made for them on, say, a ward round? I know that's the habit of many people, including some of my immediate colleagues. I personally write my own records to the surprise of some of our junior staff, but uh, if people are ever writing records for me, then I would want to make sure that what they have written down would be what I have written down with no omissions or additions or inaccuracies. And I'm not sure that the doctors who don't write their own records always do that. Notes that we make obviously should be contemporaneous and dated. And, and often it would be good if there's a, a dynamic situation for the notes to be timed as well. I don't think we're always good at doing that. Yes. And then I think thirdly, and do we write down what our differential diagnoses are, what, what our clinical reasoning has been? I find when I look at cases as an expert, I can infer what the clinical reasoning has been by looking at the history and the examination findings and then looking at the investigations that have been ordered. I can infer that somebody's investigating for uh say sepsis and doing cultures and doing blood counts and CRPs and there may be other investigations that tell me that they have thought of other aspects of the diagnosis as well but that may not be written down in a differential diagnosis and it may not be written down as clinical reasoning and you're nodding your head <laughs> yeah. you've, you've found that as well yeah no absolutely I think definitely if you can justify why you're doing what you're doing it's, it's almost you know what you want to see is it's almost that thought process of the doctor who's reviewing somebody and as you said if you if you're writing notes contemporaneously they're detailed you can see why they've done certain things I think it makes all the difference and it's a lot more um well it's a lot easier to then you know justify why you've done what you've done um otherwise You've got lawyers like us reading between the lines and <laughs> that's, um, you know, not, not always going to be the, the best, best approach to take. Um, but I think that for me, certainly, you know, for, from my experience and what I think after these claims are settled, you know, surely learning has got to be passed down to the right people because otherwise there's every chance that the same mistakes will happen again and again. Is that something that happens in your experience? Is learning fed back as, you know, an exercise at the end of the claim? No, I think that's a very interesting question because um, we often do talk about patients that uh, have had uh, the occasion to cause us to think or from which we have learned and share that with junior staff. Um, so we have meetings where... Um, there are some departments that have M&M meetings, morbidity and mortality meetings, where cases of uh, near misses or cases of patients who died 
uh, are discussed in detail. And our paediatric department and our obstetric department join together to look at perinatal mortality. And we discuss every stillbirth and every perinatal death in, in detail. And that tends to be near to the time that um, the events have happened. Um, of course, you may get other events arising out of those like uh, root cause analyses, inquests, uh, complaints, and, and one would like to feed those back as well into those kinds of meetings. But um, as for litigation, sometimes it's so long afterwards that people may not feed that back to the team who was involved at the time. Mm. Uh, though there are often lessons that uh, uh, can be learnt and discussed. Uh, when I do medical legal cases that have some important learning points, I sometimes bring those back to my department and talk about them suitably anonymised with the, mm. the learning points from them. And they they will often be from uh, cases elsewhere. I wouldn't do medical legal work. Uh, that had any bearing on care in my own region, for example, that might create a conflict of interest or a perceived conflict of interest. But uh, I could bring that case back after it's concluded with its learning points. And mm -hmm. even though it's a case from elsewhere, it may be useful. Uh, and, yeah. of course, medical royal colleges sometimes have seminars or um, meetings where they discuss the implications of care and it's bearing on medico-legal masses, certainly my own college, the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, um, which I'm a fellow as well, has meetings like that where we discuss medico-legal masses. So, yes, I think it is important to bring these lessons back. And I, I think that um, it's useful to have discussions and also discuss in advance how people can make sure that they don't do things that may give arise to complaints or to litigation. Mm. Mm. What's your your view on um, on reflective notes? I know that's quite a controversial <laughs> topic. Yes, that's a very interesting question, Jenny. And um, I think that it became controversial a while ago. And Dr. Bauer-Garber, who was a, a pediatrician, who is a pediatrician was found guilty of gross negligence manslaughter in a case which was very much a series of uh, adverse events that led to the death of a child. And uh, it was said that her reflective notes were used in the case, um, and it was later said by both the prosecution and by the defence that, in fact, they, they hadn't been used in the case. They weren't used in court, but I think that they were um, seen by both prosecution and defence. And I think uh, it is likely that they informed aspects of the prosecution and aspects of the defence. And I think for a while people became very, very concerned about reflective notes and uh, the possibility that they would be uh, discovered and, and used in court. The first point to say is that reflective notes are a personal view from the point of view of the member of staff making them. So they may not at the time they make them have a good overview of what has happened. And it's often the case that when they're discussed with the supervisor, more facts emerge and that they put a different uh, 
perspective on the subject of the reflective notes. And that's the first thing to say. But I think also that if reflective notes are made properly, they shouldn't lead to concern. And the GMC has issued a very good document called The Reflective Practitioner, which uh, has a template to reflective notes, uh, and it's a, a little circle with three areas, what, so what, and now what. And the what bit of it should contain three anonymized sentences to set the scene. And the so what bit is what can be learned. And the now what is what I would do if I met the same situation again. And then going round to the what I did when I met the same situation and continuously round. The reflective discussion with the supervisor should, of course, contain much more information. but. Uh, I think that doctors, consultants and junior staff often write lots of detail in their reflective note that would be better kept for the responses to complaints or root cause analyses or, or litigation. Those are the places where one needs everything, every detail in. And I still do see in reflective notes details of the blood gases and the, what the CRP level was and this kind of thing. That should not be there at all. Reflective notes should be completely different to the response to uh, anything more official. It's interesting. And I think that the the other thing, just harking back a little bit to breach of duty, the other thing that uh, is an interesting thought is that the Belitho test requiring us to have a logical basis to our reasoning is not always the case in medicine. There are so many parts of medical care that have been overturned by more recent research and there's a lot of care that is based on traditional approach rather than evidence-based approach even now. So it does make me a bit concerned that some of our approaches to care are not necessarily based in logic but in tradition Mm -hmm. and you might want to comment on that And, and also the other thing that I keep on coming across is guidelines Guidelines in many cases are an evidence-based, but when there's no evidence that exists, the guidelines committee often sits down and you get an opinion-based section of the guidelines and people also regard them as guidelines and may not always follow them. I don't know whether you've got thoughts on both those areas. Yeah, it's interesting. I think... um in respect of the, you know, medicines often founded in tradition, I think really that's where the experts come in because it ultimately if, if a case does end up in front of a judge, they are going to take most notice of what the experts are saying. So I think a lot of it is how, you know, what has been done is presented by the experts on both sides. But I think it's it's something that obviously evolves, isn't it? Medicine's changing all the time, new developments are coming out, there's new research. So I mean, it's difficult for me to comment, but I think it, it's certainly something that will continue to evolve. And I think that's certainly an interesting point. Um, you know, at what point does something become unreasonable or, or illogical? You know, who who knows? It's, it's a difficult question, isn't it? But um, I think that that's something that's likely to, to change as developments occur. And the guidelines point, I mean, it, it's often something that we will look at, particularly when we're assessing new claims, you know, particularly if it's, well, something, for example, like a delay in diagnosing cancer. 
one of the first things we'll look at is the NICE guidelines around that area. And that's normally more applicable to the care provided by the general practitioners. But it's certainly something that we take into account. But I appreciate what you're saying. It is guidance, you know, to the extent that that can be then said, you know, if you're not following that, then that is an absolute breach of duty. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, both both very interesting points, I think. Um, I mean, talking of, you know, evolving, I think it's it's interesting to consider how possibly clinical negligence litigation may change in the future. I think one of the things that I'm most aware of is the importance of mediation. And there's, I think, quite a big appetite for people to, to get more involved in that at an earlier stage of the process. Um, I think I think something that's interesting is it's kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, really, about, you know, the importance of having your questions answered and actually being able to speak with somebody. But the, the process of, of having a doctor who's potentially harmed somebody or, you know, made a mistake and that person, the patient in the room together, I think will really help to humanise the process. And, you know, it, it just really cements the importance of the apology. And I think actually by having mediations at an earlier point in the process, it would help to prevent claims from being dragged out unnecessarily. And as you know, there's mounting costs as you as you progress. So I think I think that will be something that, that's likely to change. And uh, I think really the system, as far as possible, you know, we should be looking to protect both sides. So we don't want to drag something out if there's a claim that doesn't actually have merit. You know, the, the point is you're not supposed to be able to continue with that claim. But equally, you don't want the claimant to have to endure years and years of unnecessary litigation just because people aren't willing to accept that mistakes have been made. So I think getting somebody in a room early on would make a big difference. But I don't know what your thoughts are um, as an expert. Well, I would agree, um, as you might gather from my remarks earlier, the sooner one has a discussion with people who might be dissatisfied or have more questions to ask, uh, the better, in my view. And I think the same would go for a mediation process rather than dragging it out uh, into a, a long litigation process. You mentioned the three-year time limit to bring claims. Of course, in paediatrics, the three-year time limit only starts when the child reaches the age of majority, 18, mm. and it never starts at all if the child does not have capacity. And so many of the high-value claims are about, uh, as you say, perinatal events, and the child may never develop capacity, so the claim could be brought many years later. And I have seen claims brought many years later, and it's difficult then to remember what the guidelines were, what the practice was in the era from which the claim arose, the event that happened. And have people kept records of how practice was different in those days because practice has certainly moved on. And I've got a row of medical textbooks on the, the shelf behind me from the different eras that I can refer to and uh, look and see how the textbook showed that things uh, were different. But, of course, that, that may not reflect the more recent development of guidelines in all aspects. A textbook is, is very different to guidelines, and people may not keep copies of guidelines from past eras. They would have offices jammed with paper if they did. I do think that, that you're raising a good point about trying to avoid litigation as far as 
possible. I, I do routinely try to practice what I preach and meet bereaved relatives in pediatrics. Deaths are uncommon, but I try to meet bereaved relatives. And I'm very often surprised by how bereaved relatives may not have remembered a sequence of events correctly or may not have interpreted what was being done correctly and and the discussion can help to put matters in perspective. That's not just because they're bringing complaints, it's because they just uh, need to talk through what has happened to their child and have somebody speak to them about the events. I'm sure the same reasoning could apply to people who are unhappy, are dissatisfied, and uh, many of them might be uh, much better addressed by having early meetings rather than resorting to litigation. Mm, what do you? <laughs> yeah, watch the space. What 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 else do you think may happen in future? Is there anything else that you think may change? I think something that will be interesting to to see how well to see how it plays out is the claims arising from COVID. I mean, I think you know, although we are now we're now 2022, aren't we? It's hard to believe, but I think it will probably take a while for those cases to work their way through the system. But it will be interesting to see what protections put in place for doctors. I, I imagine that any claims will be robustly defended on grounds that, you know, medical services weren't able to, to operate, staffing levels were all over the place, people were obviously having to respond to the, the crisis that was unfolding. But it, it will be interesting from a legal perspective to see how those claims are dealt with. Um, I think one of the things that, that has arisen, I, I don't know if it will necessarily be the way in which people who contracted COVID were handled but obviously I think a big issue is people who were awaiting surgery for example and they were then obviously pushed back due to Covid whether that will result in in claims I don't know but I think that's certainly something that will be interesting to watch unfold. Yes indeed so there may be implications for a a number of specialties there the ones who possibly were working the hardest during the pandemic and That's going to give people great pause indeed. Well, Jenny, thank you very much for speaking to me today. It's been a a pleasure to talk through a a number of aspects of uh, medical legal uh, work and uh, implications with you. And I hope that uh, we may be able to meet again and uh, have a discussion in the future and see how the predictions we've just made in the last few minutes have turned out. Thank you. Thank you.